The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager, only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Welcome to One Sweet Dream, a podcast where we explore the dream that was and is the Beatles. This is If I Ran Away From You, our series on the Beatles breakup. Welcome to episode 11. The breaking up of the Beatles uh, was a bit like a divorce. Well, you don't want to hear anything from this person. Thank you. You know, you don't want to hear their songs, you don't want to see their clothes, you don't want to smell their smells or whatever. Because we had uh, these people keeping us apart, as it almost, you know? And that makes it a whole different ballgame, you know? Speak to my lawyer. It was like a marital breakup. You know, if, you, if a husband and wife are fighting it out and someone t- tries to interfere, then both the husband and wife gang up on the other guy interfering. Get out of our business. I can feel my own fear. I can feel my own pain. We get in so much pain that we have to, we have to do something about it. John had a real bad time in his childhood. His father left home when he was three. He lived with his aunt and uncle. Then the uncle died. John started to think he's got a jinx. And he, any men he lives with leave rather suddenly. And I think John was a very frightened person about that.
As we approach the 50th anniversary of the Beatles' breakup, one thing seems clear. Why it happened remains mysterious. It's time to revisit the evidence, pressure testing the old tropes and applying sensitivity and emotional intelligence to our analysis. Come with us on a deep, deep dive across several episodes where we unpack and examine the emotional roots of this complex topic. In a nutshell, we believe this was all a high-stakes game of chase that spun out of control. The end game was never to end the Beatles or for Lennon and McCartney to separate as a creative partnership. We don't see this as primarily a battle for dominance within the band, but rather an elaborate play for respect, love, appreciation, and commitment. Join us for this radical retelling of The Breakup. That if I ran away from you, that you would want me to. Hello, listeners. Welcome to episode 11, The Divorce Meeting. Oh, my God. It has taken us <laughs> 10 episodes of preamble to get here. Well, this meeting, though, it's the culmination of so many issues coming to a head. Right, right. I don't think we could have meaningfully discussed this meeting and what happened without the context of the last... 20 hours of analysis? Two hours. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Not to put too much pressure on this episode. Right. Yeah, not to oversell it. <laughs> but there is a lot of information, a lot of backstory that is baked into this right. meeting. And out of context doesn't mean too much. Right, but right, we'll because just... we're challenging so much of the assumptions. Right, right, right. right. So if you haven't listened to the breakup series, you might want to go back after this episode and check it out. <laughs> yeah, or 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 pause right now. And <laughs> go back. If you've got an extra 20, 20 hours. <laughs> give a, it'll give a little extra resonance to this episode. But if you've just skipped ahead, welcome. Welcome. <laughs> yeah, anyways, we're finally here. So without further ado, <laughs> let's jump in. So... We just covered the fact that on the 19th, uh, Lennon McCartney lost control of Northern songs. And yet the next day, they're congregating at South Road to sign the new deal that Klein has negotiated, which by all accounts was a big win for him. It was very lucrative, a much better deal for the Beatles. And apparently it tied them together for the next six years. They had to put out a couple of albums a year and they could either be Beatles or solo albums. So, you know, it is significant that they were coming in to sign a contract that day, right? Because that, there's, a, there's an implied commitment in the fact that they're doing this. Even in a hypothetical situation where they break up, yeah. they're still all tied together under one contract meaning they're still the Beatles in some abstract way absolutely yeah (laughs) Yeah. I mean I I think that it's really important factor to frame this meeting that they're coming in to sign together and that gets lost so often it's like yeah this was the divorce statement but John made that in the context of them tying themselves together 
for six yeah, more right. years. And there's, right, a, right. there's an implicit safety and security in doing that, right? Absolutely. Putting a ring on somebody. I now pronounce you. And they're like, and I don't love you anymore. Like, whoa, 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 what? Right. But let's still get married and then we can discuss. It's I'll like, see you in the honeymoon suite. <laughs> <laughs> so that is the situation that they all are willing to commit to this at this point. But we know that Klein was in the meeting, John, Yoko, Ringo, Paul. Uh, Paul says in a couple of accounts that Linda was there. Um, so it's likely that she was there. And we know that George was not there. Apparently he was um, in Liverpool because his mother was sick, dealing with cancer. And so, you know, from the various accounts, it says that he was on the phone. He was piped in through the phone. And just as a broad outline, we know what happened in this meeting, right? John comes in planning not to say anything about quitting, as advised by Klein. Mm. Paul proposes that they go on tour, and then at some point, John declares that he's quitting the Beatles, and then they all sign the contract. That's basically the events of the meeting. Yes, yes. And yet, this is also essentially when Paul and, and John date the real breakup of the Beatles, right? So it's a really mm -hmm. important event that's worth digging into um, to actually have a look at what's going on, because it's always kind of quickly told, you know? Yeah, even in the most detailed Beatles books, it's usually given like a, just a summary, yeah. a little quote here and there. With they, a slant but, from the author based on what happened, usually based on what John said. Exactly, like a little bit of editorializing, but the bare bones of the story, a quote from Paul, a quote from John, and then move on. Yeah. So John and Paul have both told this story many times over the years. Um, poor Paul, he's told yeah. it a million times by yeah. this point. Uh, but John told it uh, several times when he was alive as well. Yeah. And they're mostly consistent um, between John and Paul and between the accounts that they each give individually. But just to be thorough yeah. and to do our job, <laughs> we've pulled uh, three quotes each from both John and Paul um, over a variety of time periods and contexts and different points in their lives just to sort of cross-reference their various accounts to see what's consistent over time and to see where or if there's variations. I think that what they pull out reflects some of the elements that are important to them. There is a lot of overlap between their telling, but they pull out different elements. So that's what we want to look at. We're going to try and parse out what happened, what they're feeling. And then we also want to consider, you know, why did John declare that he was leaving the group when he wasn't planning on doing that? You know, what happened there? Because it really isn't explained, you know? Yeah. And so we need to think through, was he triggered? Was this something that John really wanted at this time? You know, was this um, a desire on this particular day or was this a, a long-term um, outcome that he wanted? Uh, or was this just an emotional reaction? And also, why did Paul react the way he did? What was Paul's reaction attributable to? Right. Like, how did Paul interpret these events? And was it right. based on his emotions at the time? Or is it based on something else that happened? Right, right. And how does Paul's reaction play into the fallout from this as well? Because That's a, it does. Exactly. Exactly. There are a lot of details here and... 
they're important to pay attention to. And just before we jump into the multiple tellings of the story, we want to point out to, to keep in mind the different desires of the, the two players. We know that John wants to take ownership of quitting the band, you know, and yes. that, that saving face is incredibly important to him. I would say that saving face is probably John's main motivation at all times. At all times. Absolutely. Talking, no, at yeah. all times. And on the other hand, much different, Paul's motivation would be probably not wanting to be the bad guy. Absolutely. You know, we've said this a million times about the fact that he does not want to be blamed for this. He wants to put the blame squarely on John um, for this particular meeting. But I think in general, as you said, that this is kind of his MO, is that he does not ever want to be the bad guy. He doesn't seem to care about saving face. That's you right. Know, he does not spin things in a way that he looks good. He just doesn't yes. want to be the bad guy. Yes. So you have one person who is always focused on saving face and doesn't mind coming off as mean or hard in the yeah. process. If that's what it takes, yeah. that's fine with him. And then you have another guy who is so concerned about not being seen as mean or bad that he's willing to look like a sad sack. <laughs> he is. He is. That's, that's okay with him. He's fine. He, yeah. he will throw himself under the bus. If it means and, that and you're not going to be mad at him. And he does. Right. <laughs> right. So you've got like ultra macho posturing and then somebody who is not going to do any macho posturing. And that's just important to remember that these are the emphasis that each of them are putting on it. And neither one of them is true. You know, so we have to find the space <laughs> right, in between right, right, right. <laughs> the truth yes, that lies exactly. in between those two. As fun as stereotypes are and, and as easy as they make as our easy. lives. Yes. <laughs> It's just not how the world works, so. Right. And I think sometimes people project the issues they're insecure about. So in this <laughs> right, right. so in this situation, John needs to be reassured that he's tough, and Paul needs to be reassured that he's a good guy. John doesn't think he's tough, and Paul doesn't think he's good. Because I think that people take it as, because John's tough, he wants to project he's tough, but it's like when you're really tough, you can be a little bit, you're not worried about that. You're like, whatever, yeah. you know, or, and it's interesting that Paul always, I think that maybe there's part of him that doesn't trust himself or is always worried, like, was I a good enough guy? You know, because that was trained into him as something that's really important by Jim. And Paul probably is always worried that he's a little bit um, self-centered. Yeah. So the first quote we have from John is from December 1970 in the infamous Lennon Remembers interview. Uh, apart from sort of sound bites that John gave immediately after the McCartney Press release in April 1970, this is like the first long interview that John has given after the Beatles breakup. He gets a lot off of his chest in this interview, as I'm sure everybody's well aware. Just for context, this is John, fresh out of um, primal scream therapy, where he has renounced everything that he believed in. He doesn't believe in the Beatles. He doesn't believe in, you know, their special love. He doesn't believe in the Beatles myth. He doesn't believe in the dream. Whatever the dream was with the Beatles, you know, is dead to him. Yeah. I mean, we've talked a lot about this because John sounds fairly um, 
unemotional. Unemotional. Yeah. Unemotional is probably the best word. He's been coached at this point. You know, he's gone through therapy. He's been coached into a better place. Yeah. So we have to take that into account when looking at how he's talking about this as well. All right. So this is what John says. We were discussing something in the office with Paul and uh, Paul was saying something or other like, like to do something or and I kept saying no, no, no uh, to everything he said, you see. So it came to a point I had to say something. Paul said, well, what do you mean? And so I said, I mean, uh, uh, the group's over, I'm leaving. And, but Alan was there, he, he'll remember exactly, and she will, this is my, how I see it. Uh, Alan was saying, don't tell, he didn't want me to tell Paul even, you know. And but I couldn't help, so I told him it's out. You know, I couldn't stop it. It came out, mm-hmm. and Paul and Alan said they were glad that I wasn't going to announce it. That I was going to make an event out of it. You know? <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. But Paul and Alan both—I don't know whether Paul said don't tell anybody, but he was damn pleased that I wasn't. You know, he said, "Oh well, that means nothing really happened if you're not going to say anything." So that's what happened. Now, I think this account is important for a couple of reasons. <laughs> One is that John says Alan would remember exactly and Yoko will. And we know for a fact that John relies, especially during this period, when his memory isn't especially good or, you know, sometimes when something traumatic happens to you, it's difficult to remember the real details and stuff. Yeah. Um, but we know for a fact that Yoko has sort of rehearsed stories with him, coached him, and he has explicitly said that um, I'm too emotional and stupid, but Yoko's very smart, and she told me all the stuff that was going on. You know, even though she was sitting right next to me, she saw all the stuff that was happening that I didn't see. And and when we came home, she told me who was looking at me and what Paul was saying, you know, right. behind my back and stuff. Right. So the point of that is that you're not a, always getting John's perspective. You may be getting Yoko's observations, right? Or Yoko's perspective filtered through John. Right. He's parroting basically what she has told him. Because a lot of the time, he's probably focused on one thing and she's observing others. In other words, this isn't entirely just John's thinking. Yeah, and and totally. we, we know that um, they rehearse things because Mei Pang, who was working for Alan Klein at the time. Watched the him do it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, watched him do it before every interview. So. Right, right. And she was also present for many um, events that she's heard John completely fabricate and lie about so right. and and tell her he's sorry but he has to do it for the, <laughs> yeah, right, for the yeah. media for the sake of the <laughs> like, media and saving pay, face so yeah. you know yeah so he will retrospectively get input from yoko Th- that's one thing and then the other thing is that um i i sometimes hear when people take sides about john and paul and who's right and who's terrible and whatever some people sort of support this idea of john's that like Paul asked John not to say anything in the meeting so that he could secretly go home and plot how he was going <laughs> to announce it, you know, right, right. which is, which is kind of how John spins it. He's like, that was what happened. And then six months later, he comes out and makes his announcement to promote his album. Like John's kind of implying, and I think he probably believes at this point that Paul is totally duping him, like <laughs> Absolutely. just pulling the wool over his eyes here. Okay, you're not going to say anything. Okay, cool. 
Hmm. And then the wheels start turning in that McCartney <laughs> mind. How can I fuck him over? Oh, this is a perfect opportunity to exploit this dum-dum. Exactly. And Paul's not worrying about the breakup. He's he's like, how can I sell more records? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> That's the only thing going through him. How can I sell more records? <laughs> but yes, that is an absolute trope that... Paul is Machiavellian and working behind the scenes to get John, John to not say anything so that he can use it to sell a record six months later. I was a fool not to do it, you know. Not to do what Paul did, which is use it to sell a record. And in this December 1970, John is fair-minded enough to go, fine, it wasn't Paul's idea, but he certainly liked the idea, and I'm a little suspicious of that, you know, (laughs) which is like, obviously it's Alan Klein's idea, because the whole thing was Alan Klein's idea. Right, right. You you just told us that he had convinced you not to say anything. (laughs) Right. He didn't even want you to tell Paul. So, of course, Alan's like, John, remember... You're not going to say anything, right? And right, Paul's like, exactly. wait, what? You're not going to say anything? Okay. Uh, but but, but just to, to, to add on to the fact that I, I think it's a really great point to say that a lot of John's memories um, are are filtered through what Yoko has told him or, you know, it's, it's sort of, it's their collective observations and yes. he is very influenced by her perspective and her perspective would be probably pretty different than John's yeah. himself. You know? Well, and he, he the thing is is that John trusts her. Yeah. He literally says like thank God Yoko is here to tell me what's going on. Right. Cuz I'm, you know, I'm just walking around loving everybody and trusting everybody and she is filling me in that all these people are trying to fuck me. Everybody except her and yeah. Klein. Yeah. Which is really too bad. And I think that that is something we'll talk about this more later on, but I really think that that's something that bothers Paul is that I think that he's upset that certain people managed to turn John against him or at least doubt Paul's motives. I really get that sense Mm -hmm. that that hurts Paul, that somehow John became paranoid and suspicious of Paul. And I, I think that Paul was pretty much always working in the band's interest, at least in his mind. And yet he saddled yes. with this reputation and, and John's view that he's not, you know, and, and that would really hurt. I wish that John at this point was able to just make decisions think based, think for himself, you know, but anyways, and, he doesn't. And just for the record, I, I, I don't think that this is, that it's a, just a Machiavellian plot on Yoko's part to, to, alienate John from everybody. I mean, I think it's very possible that Yoko is paranoid herself and she believes all this crazy shit too. 100%. 100%. I I totally agree. Like if we assume there's no real villains here, I mean, I think that Klein is the closest thing and that probably the worst thing about him is he's just greedy. But even he's not like a murderous psychopath, you know, but (laughs) you know what I mean? And yeah. yeah, I mean, we talk about John being paranoid. We certainly have lots of evidence that Yoko was equally paranoid. You know, in fact, Chris O'Dell was living with uh, John and Yoko's assistant. And when Yoko found out about it, she insisted that Chris move because she was part of George's camp, even though Chris was not particularly attached to George at that point. And so Yoko was the one that saw them in different camps, you know, just as additional yeah. support for the fact that Yoko de- definitely understood um, politics and, and had her own paranoia running. The thing about Paul and Alan told me 
by late 1971, when he writes that absolutely fucking insane open letter to, to Linda. Yeah, the unhinged. He say, <laughs> yes, like somebody's going to come put him you know, <laughs> away. Him like, away. Yeah. Yes, he's screaming, <laughs> rage tweeting at Linda. And he's like, the cunts fucking told me to keep my mouth shut. That's a He's quote. escalating, like, yes. He's like, no, 100%. This was Paul's fucking idea. He and Alan conspired to keep me quiet so that Paul could announce it with his fucking press release and sell that shitty album. He's flat out accusing him a year later. Here in, in December 1970, this isn't even as crazy as he gets. Here he's like, well, it's fine. It wasn't Paul's idea, but he, he went agreed along to with it. it. Yes, exactly. The kernel of an idea will start and that it will grow in the... the reciting of a certain event and and that's kind of how like these myths grow in in the fandom too that all of a sudden you know paul talked him into it so he could sell more records you know yeah in terms of what he said in this i think that there's maybe a few interesting points here one he makes it seem like paul has come in and is suggesting a ton of potential things they could do because he says that um I you know, kept saying no, no, no to everything he said. To which, everything. So apparently he's like saying many things. Like it's some laundry things. list of suggestions. Yes. <laughs> yes. But as far as we know, and we've cross-referenced many, like we looked at many, many versions of this from everybody. And nobody brings up any suggestions that Paul ever made except going on tour. That's the only thing that was floated. Even Paul, you know, Paul's not, I was suggesting multiple things. The highlight of which was, why don't we go on tour, lads? Right. He, he's just like, this was my one idea that I had to pitch. Right. And this this has grown, too, in terms of the telling. And it's coming from here, you know. I kept saying no, no, no to everything. So that suggests that he's saying multiple things. Yeah, we've noticed that John tends to do this in the telling of it. Like, you know, as we said, there was only one suggestion. So he obviously doesn't list multiple suggestions from Paul, but he does always sort of imply that, that he rejected him multiple times, right? Yeah, I said, that... no, no, no. And then I gave him the big rejection, you know, like, right. and we thought one of the reasons he might inflate this in the telling of it is because in the last meeting that they had before this one, John was actually the one who floated multiple suggestions for the Beatles. Right. The person saying no, no, no in that case was actually Paul. No cold turkey, no to the 4442, no to the Christmas album. We kind of thought like maybe John saying, I kept saying no, 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 is, is more sort of a wish fulfillment on his part, like... He wants to give that same rejection back to Paul. Right. Because as far as we can tell, that's not what happened. And in t- saying this, that I kept saying no, 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 it it gives the impression that Paul's kind of delusional and excited about the future of the Beatles and proposing multiple things, all of which John is like, no, I'm not interested. Well, you know, John, like 10 days earlier, you were really interested in doing multiple things with the Beatles. You gave an interview with the press saying that you they were your closest friends, that you only wanted to record with them, you know? So there is a lot of um, fronting. And I don't even know if it's uh, conscious, you know? I agree, I agree. But nobody really fact-checked it. Yeah. And authors 
have gotten sloppier and sloppier over time that they just sort of take the like the right. impressionistic view that they get from John and they're just like, oh, he sounds so fed up. I'm going to write that in my book. Right. Lennon was fed up with McCartney's constant rambling. It's like, <laughs> okay, but you're just sort of making stuff up now. Well, you know, they're leaning into what John said, but that's always a bit dangerous, as we said, where, you know, John likes to retell things in a way that he looks better. He doesn't mention here that I was frustrated because Paul just shot down every idea I had in the month before. So when he came up with one idea, I was like, hell no. He plays it out like just Paul's the one that's delusional and trying to right. continue with the band, right? It, well, and I will say this, that it it is not out of the realm of possibility that Paul was sort of babbling. You know, we do know that he has the, the tendency to, to ramble. Well, especially especially during this year. I think where he's a little right. bit uncomfortable with the three to one scenario. You know, I think if you would have what, heard Paul yes. in 67, it would have been a much cooler, more confident Paul. Exactly. Exactly. His nervous, self-conscious rambling. That's a different animal than his like coked up creative genius rambling. Right. That's different. It's a different right. beast. And a couple of other noteworthy aspects or elements of um, this recollection. He makes it clear that Alan Klein had asked him not to tell. Uh, anyone, but he couldn't help himself. He sets this up that it just came out. He couldn't help himself. And then he makes the point again that Paul and Alan basically said, don't say anything. And, and I would just like to also note, he thinks Paul is pleased. And this, this statement specifically jumps out to me, the, oh, well, that means nothing really if you're not going to say anything. That's his recollection of what Paul said. Specifically, yeah. oh, well, that means nothing really happened if you're not going to say anything. Suggest to me that Paul kind of wrote it off pretty quickly or was reassured pretty quickly. Yeah, um, which in my mind sort of begs the question, like, well, didn't you push back on that, John, if, if you were so adamant about quitting? And Paul said, well, that means nothing really happened if you're not going to say anything. Why didn't you reply, yeah. oh, no, it means something. Right. No, I'm fucking done with this band. Right. We're just going to keep it quiet. And that includes you, McCartney, bassist. <laughs> you shut your fucking trap and do what you're told. Because <laughs> that's how he talks in everybody's fantasies. Um, <laughs> why wouldn't he just say, no, of course it means something. Right. I'm serious. And, and then Wenner asks, what was Paul's reaction when you said that? Well, I mean, like like anybody, when you say divorce, you know, the face goes all sorts of colors. So we have the information yeah. that somehow, in, in some way, the word divorce was dropped in this meeting and that he did also notice Paul's face change. In this recollection, he conveys that he observed Paul basically having a, a reaction to it, reddening. You know, he, he's observed that Paul has reacted to it. Okay, so that's John's first telling of it. And then we pulled a second quote from 1976. Um, again, the context of this is he's uh, he's streak, finished yeah. his creative hot streak mm -hmm. in the mid-70s, and he's gone back to Yoko. He's let his record contract expire, and he's semi-retired at this point, although, you know, it's only been a year, so nobody knows for sure. Anyways... Elliot Mintz is a friend of Yoko's, who is also a journalist. Who essentially over the years becomes her mouthpiece. You know, she, he really, really acts as 
her PR person. Her PR person, absolutely. So yeah, he he was, I think, the official Lennon Ono spokesperson in the eighties. Right. This is John. You know, a year after he comes back to Yoko, and you know, so that's that's important to take into account. Yes, and actually, you know, I suspect that this interview was set up by Yoko um, because. John is reluctant to talk about this subject. He's snippy with Elliot Mintz a few different times. <laughs> and then also, um, John tells his version of the breakup story again with very little enthusiasm. And then Yoko kind of takes over and sort of coaches him. And then she literally like just takes over the story. Well, and here's the thing, too, is that, <laughs> you know, there's, there are multiple people have noticed the difference in tone from John uh, in terms of, you know, during the, the year and a half he was with Mei Peng and, you know, he, he reconnected with all his friends. The tone that he, he spoke about the Beatles was very positive. Oh, completely different. You know, it was very yes, different yes. and very positive. And then this is back, you know, th- then we see a movement back towards being a Negativity. little bit more negative. Yeah. The last time we yes. the last time we talked about Beatles and the like, yes. you said all your memories, you said almost quote, all your memories of that experience are now uh, good ones and you've raced all the stuff that was uh, upsetting you and now the the thing that you just want to keep in mind is that the music was good and it's done that's pretty uh, much where we left it is it good, you... good that must have been when i was getting positive yeah uh, I, I i like that but of course i remember the other stuff too so i get a bit absolute in my statements which sometimes get me into deep water and sometimes into the shallow but both statements are true and it suits me fine and it's important. Okay. It's important to understand the context, you know, and the lens with which he's telling the story, you know, or the mood um, from which he's telling the story. Okay. So, and then the Nenmans asked him to retell the breakup story. I was going to ask you if you recall that, that occasion when you walked in and said, I've had it. Well, I think I, it's all down in the, the famous Rolling Stone interview. It was some period when there was just Paul and Linda and Klein. None of the others were there. Mm -hmm. And I just went and said, well, I wasn't planning to say it, but uh, Paul was talking about these different things he wanted to do. And I kept sort of saying, well, I don't know, well, I don't know. And I began to feel guilty because I'd said it in my head, you know, already made a decision. And he said, well, what do you want then? You know, you keep saying no, no, no to these different things. So I said, well, actually, I just want out. You know, I've had enough. And that's how it really happened. But because I didn't plan to do it at that time that I, I said it. And then, as I said in the stone, well, both Klein and Paul at that time said, well, you don't have to tell everybody, do you? You know, you don't have to announce it. And I said, okay, no, I won't announce it then. And then a year later, Paul announced it, right? <laughs> Good old. That was a great trick, you know. Because that maybe that that's how when he you know he felt that's how he had to do it. But so, uh, you were the third one actually in that short oh, yeah, period of time. Yeah. First it was Ringo who said mm. he's yeah he wants to leave, and then George said he's leaving, and then about two weeks or months later I don't remember exactly but yeah. then you said it you know. Boredom dissolved the Beatles then. Boredom and well you know I keep saying you know a marriage that doesn't work you know. And uh, it, you couldn't say it was boring because there's nothing boring about, you know, being the Beatles in a way. Just the rot setting. Uh, two weeks ago. Creatively boring. 
So let's uh, let's look at what he actually says. All right. So the first thing is, um, John says Paul and Linda are there with Klein and Yoko, and he says none of the others were there, were they? Like, he doesn't remember uh, Ringo. God bless Ringo. I mean, right. I, I'm not trying to, you know, diminish. Make, <laughs> diminish him, seriously. But it is sort of telling that, like, neither John nor Paul really remember if he's there or not, which just really, I think, cannot overemphasize how much this is between John and Paul. Absolutely. We focus on the breakup between John and Paul because this is how they see it, how they talk yes. about it. They only remember the person that they know was there was each other. In in all right. of their counts, it's basically John said this and Paul said this, and that's all that matters. Again, no disrespect to Ringo, but like, who is John tendering his resignation to? Right. Everything is between them. George doesn't come up. Ringo doesn't come up. So that's important. And then again... John does this thing about, uh, Paul was talking about all these different things he wanted to do, which, you know, again, is not accurate as far as we can tell. Yeah. Because if Paul pitched anything other than touring, nobody has any recollection of it, including Paul. And, And it's the kind of thing that Paul would actually say, because he seems to be determined to convey that he did not want the Beatles to end. You know, in in the telling of the Ricky and the Red Streaks story, you know, I think that the the point of that is to say that I still wanted the Beatles to continue. And so if he had other examples, he probably would have used them. Anyways, yeah. Yes, exactly. So we've got John here saying that um, Paul talking about these different things he wanted to do. And I kept sort of saying, well, I don't know. Well, I don't know. So, you know, again, that that is exactly the same scenario that he set up in the last. Exactly. And then he started to feel guilty about lying and he finally confessed. In this version, Paul says to him, well, what do you want then if you keep saying no to all these different things? Um, Which is interesting because in this 1976 version, it's kind of like, well, Paul called me out. He sort of called my bluff. Right. Right. So he had, had so he had to, you know, say something. Right. Interesting, because that's kind of how Paul lays it out also. And then again, he also reiterates that he wasn't planning to do it. Well, this is an addition in this one, is that the first time he tells it, he doesn't feel guilty. This time, he says, and I began to feel guilty because I'd said it in my head, which is a better look. You know, he's being more explicit here. Right, 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 right. I mean, don't get me wrong. I think he's got regrets. And also they've made up by this point. They've made up and already are kind of beginning to fall out again. Right. But he wants to keep the story. It's important to him to maintain the story that he left then and he meant it. He had decided he was going to leave the group. It's just that it came out when he didn't mean it to come out. And then you've Mm -hmm. got the same story that, you know, all of the things that Paul wanted to do kind of forced his hand and he had to admit and then he was forced back into a box by Klein and Paul and then Paul fucked him. That's kind of the story that he continually tells. Yes. Yeah. And then he says a year later, Paul announced it, which it's six months, but okay, John. Right. Which we were kind of (laughs) laughing at the fact that, okay, you think you let it sit for a year? (laughs) You know, doesn't that seem like a long time to promise that you're going to be silent? John's a very good boy, apparently. And then they do the same thing where 
you know, when Yoko takes over the story, she's like, I don't remember what it was, but John quit two weeks after George did. And again, it it shows how facts are very movable. Yoko wants to sort of deflect some of the blame from them and say that everybody was quitting. This was two weeks after, you know, which is a different story. Um, But again, it's like whatever's convenient to make the point they want to make. I think it's like, you know, John was right behind them. It's not like John was trying to keep the band together or anything. I see it more as that, you know, that everybody was leaving. Like, don't blame John. You know, the only one that was still wanted to be in it was Paul. Well, that's the main... That's the that's the takeaway. That's the only important thing. That's what I think Yoko's trying to say. That, She's trying to say the, the three the three of them are in lockstep, and Paul is the baby man who wants to hold on to the baby band. <laughs> right. Well, yeah, that to hold on to the band that is his life. Yeah. 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 No, that that's exactly what I mean. That that by putting George and John close makes them seem like you know it was all falling apart. And then it's interesting because Mint says, you know, after this, <laughs> Mint sort of summarizes and, and says this back to John. So he goes, so boredom dissolved the Beatles then. And, you know, it's interesting because. Um, John didn't say that. John didn't say that. <laughs> there, was, there was nothing to lead him to that conclusion. I assume that it's other conversations that he's had potentially with Yoko or, you know, there, there's something in his mind. Yes. No, he's been prepped by Yoko. She's like, listen, the bottom line that we always want to hit is boredom. You know, it's now it's not it's not about um, viciousness about Paul or whatever, because we know they've made up and all that sort of stuff. So now we're just hitting the boredom theme. Right. Boredom broke the Beatles up. And then I was a better option because I was exciting. Yes. He was only interested in me. He had lost interest in the Beatles. That's the story. Yes. Well, there's a couple of, of versions of this. Why did the Beatles break up? You know, yep. that John and Yoko and Paul give. And one of them is um, John was creatively bored and needed Yoko, who was a superior um, inspiration. Right. To him. Exciting and inspirational to him. And that's all he could think about. All three of them push that story at various times. Yes. That's that's like a party line. It is. It's, it's weird because he has this totally different conversation and and Vince is like and in conclusion boredom dissolved the Beatles then and then John he just can't quite go with a party line and he's like well you know I keep saying a marriage that doesn't work you know and then he goes and uh you couldn't say it was boring because there's nothing boring about being the Beatles in a way which is really interesting and really undermines this story, like that yeah. statement that there is nothing boring about being the Beatles. Well, that's for sure. And then he and then he sort of concedes just the rot sets in, you know, which I think is I think that that is probably what he believes that the rot set in that there was underlying issues. Yes. And, that, and that's what Paul says, too. Absolutely. Paul says it in a in a more positive way. The rot, as far as Paul is concerned, is Apple and Beatles business. Uh, exactly. business. Yeah, and Alan Klein. Yes. Yep, exactly. And not having music. Paul keeps reiterating. That's why he pitches the idea of them going on the road, because he always insists, like, listen, when the Beatles got together and played, it was awesome. And we were always an awesome band, and we were an awesome band until the last fucking time we played. 
And and Ringo supports that idea too, actually, you know. And John kind of supports it here too. Yeah, he was he's saying that there was nothing boring, there was just issues. And then he concludes with the rot set in and then he says creatively boring. Which again is weird and out of left field because that is not at all what they have been talking about, but I think he remembers the party line or something. You know, or it's just he's just giving in and being like, "Okay." Yeah. <laughs> well, I like how he's like he's like no, not boring. Okay, creatively boring. It's like, well, I'm sorry. What else was boring supposed to be? What are we? What are you talking about? Like, what other kind of boredom is there for a band? For a creative band, right? exactly. For a bunch of artists, exactly. Where's Where's he going with that? I think that he's being honest when he says, "You couldn't say it was boring because there's nothing boring about being the Beatles. Like, nothing yeah. boring about it." But I think that's a good example of how the story gets distorted. Like John was literally conveying how he saw that meeting and Elliot Mintz finishes it with the way he wants the story to go and John doesn't play ball for a second and then gives it yeah and then the final anecdote that we have is uh technically off the record um it's from a book written by John Green called Dakota Days John Green as you may remember remember is the Lennon's um, astrologer yeah yeah, he's their astrologer slash tarot card reader he's staff he's not a freelance guy who comes in every once in a while he's like on their payroll it's like a full-time job (laughs) 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 telling John what to eat for breakfast how to react to to Paul yeah exactly like what Paul is thinking about him Uh, you know astrologers may not be the most credible source but the interesting thing is is that people do tend to divulge stuff to (laughs) people that they're trying to get information about what they should do in their life you know so green may have been privy to some of John's unfiltered thinking yeah and um this guy, John Green, recounts a few different sort of emotionally rambly rants about Paul and weird paranoias that John has about Paul and insecurities and the anger and just, you know, all these crazy, you know, very passionate emotions that he that he has about Paul, um, which, again, is consistent with everybody's accounts. What we're going to read here is John's just unloading on John Green, the tarot card reader one day about Paul. He's giving him a whole retrospective on their relationship. (laughs) So he's talking about um, the end of the Beatles and basically how he kind of fell apart towards the end. It's just, you know, the familiar story. And and then he says, um, I'm going to start reading here. He says, then it seemed everybody was drifting off in different directions. And that seemed to make more sense than trying to go on. All that was needed was for someone to pronounce the patient dead, but none of us really wanted to do that. Then I decided it was my job, unpleasant as it was. I talked to Paul about it, and he asked me not to announce the breakup. Asked? Hell, he begged me. I was touched because I thought it was because he had faith that somehow, somewhere, everything would work out and we'd do it all over again. Well, I was touched, all right. Touched in the head, Paul went behind my back and made the announcement as part of a publicity campaign for a record. So you've okay. got some similar elements here, and then some yeah. very different elements, right? 
Exactly. First of all, there's the Paul went behind my back and made the announcement for a publicity campaign for a record. And, and again, that idea that that's all he was invested in. Like the whole thing was about Paul selling records. That's all he cares about. And he didn't he care do- about my feelings, my oh. the band, none of that shit. Right. And right. he would lie to my face about it too. He let me think he had cared. Right. He was duped. This constant, yeah. constant idea that Paul... Paul is soulless. Like John portrays himself as doing the right thing and the good thing and, you know, being the good guy. And Paul, who's heartless, screws him over, uses him, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, so that's that's similar. It makes me laugh because, you know, the point, the, the statement here is, I talked to Paul about it and he asked me not to announce the breakup. So you see the evolution. <laughs> I pulled Paul aside gently and said, listen, we need to have a talk. John, we all know the story. <laughs> like, that's not what happened, buddy. It's it's now evolved until I talked to Paul privately. Which is which is actually the respectful way he would have done that to his partner of twelve years. You know, it's interesting because when Yoko's not there, yep. when when Wenner's not there, when he's not talking to Rolling Stone, all of a sudden it's not about him being creatively bored and needing to escape the Beatles and having made <laughs> right, the decision. Right. You know what I mean? It's very different in this particular telling of it. Yes. It's almost like it's leaning into his fear of abandonment. You know, it seemed everybody was drifting off in different directions. Yes, yes. That's what jumped out to me, too. And that seemed to make more sense than trying to go on, which kind of implies that, like, I was trying. I was trying to keep it going. And and maybe Paul was, but it, it just wasn't happening. It was like it was everybody hard. was drifting off and it was like I couldn't. I ran out of steam, which is is kind of how Paul sounds sometimes when he tells it. Well, also, it is aligned with what we've just talked about, that John, you know, 10 days before this, just proposed a bunch of ideas that were rejected. And so... To, To have John's back, he did try. Right. And this idea that they're drifting off, like drifting. Which, again, is this slow dissolving that I think would have really hurt John. I really do. I really think that if everything would have just fallen apart, it would almost have been harder for John than the big yeah. explosion that it yes. was. Yes, oh, for sure. You for know? sure. We do know that rejection and abandonment are issues for John. You know, so the idea that they could just leave him or that things could just fall apart, it just wouldn't be acceptable to him. You know, like better to tell himself that he made the decision. So in this in this telling of it, he's the one that made the call. He says, then I decided that it was my job, unpleasant as it was. Yeah, but I mean, and again, he's saying unpleasant as it was like, I hated to do it, Charles. I hated to do it, but somebody had to do it, you know? Like- right, right, right. Again, very, very different. So explicitly in the other two tellings is that he wanted to leave. He had made the decision to leave for his own reasons, you know, whereas this oh, yeah, one, yeah, yeah. it's like the band had fallen apart and it was just left to him to call it. Basically, that's really different. And Ringo tells Ringo tells a version that's kind of that sounds more like that, actually. It does. It is. Uh, yeah, I was just thinking that because Ringo's version does sort of reflect this. Anyways, you know, we can see that from just the analysis that we've done that Paul's not jumping on his idea. George isn't jumping on the idea, you know? So for John to have come away with the conclusion that everybody was drifting away is not necessarily far-fetched, you know? Yeah. And then my favorite part of the quote, 
That's where he goes, asked, hell, he begged me, which is hilarious because in 1970, it's like, okay, it wasn't his idea, but let's just say Paul was Happy. pleased that yes. I didn't say anything. Yes. And then it's like in 1971, the cunts told me not to say anything. And then by 1977 or whatever this is, it's like, Paul begged me not to say anything. <laughs> yeah. Klein's Klein's not even a part of the situation anymore. <laughs> It's just Paul begging him. Exactly. Like, and this is how these things evolve, you know? All of a sudden, he's done the right thing, pulled Paul gently aside to tell him one-on-one, which is the way he should have done it. And of course, in this version, Paul's like, please don't leave. But the, and then the, Which is all a lie. Which, which is all just a lie to, to set him up. Right, right, exactly. But, you know, I don't even know if John's fronting at this point, you know, or whether or not he has absorbed and taken in this story. You know what I mean? Like, in his mind, does he at this point think that Paul begged him not to say anything? Oh, no, I think he's... That's not fronting at all to me. I think he's saying that's how... That's how duplicitous Paul was. No, but my point is that, you know, clearly Paul did not do that. But I don't and I don't know even at this point whether or not John knows that but, he didn't do, right, right, do right, that. Right, 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 right. Whether in John's mind, that's how he remembers it's gotten, it. But it's grown so much in his mind. The interesting point is it's this idea that Paul didn't want him to go. Like that's implicit that with he begged me, Paul didn't want him to go. Basically, in his mind, he's thinking Paul was happy that I wasn't going to say anything, which touched him because it meant something to John, right? But he's saying that he was only pretending to love me and want me to stay so that he could master plan his mega album release and stab me in the back. (laughs) Right. Well, that's consistent in all three tellings. Paul is a bastard that just used his good nature to stab him in the back. So, yes, it grows in terms of the telling of it. But for sure, the most important part was I was touched because I thought it was because he had faith that somehow, somewhere, (laughs) everything would work out and we'd do it all over again. Yeah, I think there's a critically important point that when there is an option, when he thinks that Paul cares and is willing to do it again, it shows that he was willing. You know, so this idea that he was finished is kind of dismantled by this statement. And that, in the way he's portraying it, was a good thing, you know? Well, exactly. And and there's two parts to it. One, that he's happy and touched because he thinks that Paul cares and doesn't want him to leave. Yep. But also, when he says he assumes Paul has faith that they're going to work it out and do it all over again. That to me sounds like John thinks that Paul's going to come back and fix it. Absolutely. And he's pleased because that's the reaction he wants. Right. And this idea, and we do it all over again. I mean, there's such hope in that statement. It's, it's kind of a heartbreaking statement, you know, it's kind of romantic. And I don't mean, you know what I mean by romantic. Absolutely. The idea that John is hoping that Paul's going to come back and they do it all over again, reinvent the Beatles again. I mean, certainly that's hugely romantic. And it does help explain why the dream is over after that press release comes out, after the the breakup of the Beatles. It's not just like that band is over. It's like, no, the dream is over. Right. 
And to anyone who's just like, why do you think John Lennon's that romantic? Have you listened to his music? (laughs) Right. I know. It's true. I mean, I actually think of John, and I think you do too, as being the more romantic in terms of the two. I mean, Paul's got tons of romantic music. But in terms of... John's like the biggest romantic in rock and roll history. He is. And that's why you see so much disillusionment, because that's commensurate with how big his dream was. But it's also interesting to me that he he continues to repeat how devastated he was by Paul announcing it. And, And Paul himself sort of shrugs and says, well, it wasn't that big a deal that I announced it. Like, I don't think it's... Maybe that hurt him, but it wasn't that big a deal. And, you know, I think when you read this, that... He had the faith that somehow, somewhere, everything would work out and we'd do it all over again. That if this is what John was led to believe, you know, that sort of explains why he would have been so hurt. It wasn't just the fact that Paul announced it first and John was the leader. He had bought into this idea that there was still hope. I think that Paul talking him back and saying, well, actually Klein talking him back and Paul looking pleased, which is probably the real scenario, Yes, was a signal to him. And we said this in our very first episode. We talked about the fact that he says that we do it all over again. What's jumped out to us, and this is coming from Green, but what jumped out to us is that that's a similar statement to what Derek said. Derek Taylor says. Yeah, Yeah. Derek Taylor says in the summer of 1970 in their press release. And so it just seemed to us that maybe this was... The phrase that John used, and so it just seemed weird that this guy was repeating a phrase that Derek Taylor had earlier used, and that exactly gave it more legitimacy. As far as Paul acknowledging, like, that hurt John, I don't even think that Paul acknowledges that it was hurtful. In fact, he in 1986, he says, I, I announced the breakup, of, I don't see what's so hurtful about that. Meaning, like, I don't know that Paul is even aware that John is thinking this. I don't think he is because he also says um, in many years from now, it it was simple jealousy that he didn't get to announce it. That's it. That's all it was. Like he shuts it down. He's like, has nothing to do with anything else. It's just um, macho bullshit. He just wanted to announce it. I do think there is an element of embarrassment and John is angry over that, right? He's angry that Paul embarrassed him in public by announcing the breakup. Right, because it... For it, sure, it, it for actually, sure that's an element. Right, and it, because it took away some power from him, you know? And, and as we said, as somebody who is constantly wanting to save face, you know, he wants to be positioned as the leader, and it's kind of a leadership role to announce that they broke up. I think Paul is kind of shrugs and goes, well, we were co-leaders, so I had as much right to say we're breaking up as John, you know? Right. Paul thinks that's all it's about. And and we think it's only one element. The larger issue is this, that John kept waiting for, for Paul to come back and fix things. I think fundamentally what this tells us is that John wasn't checked out, that John was open <laughs> To be wooed. Like he read a lot into the fact that Paul didn't want him to say anything. Like that to to him conveyed the idea of Paul still has faith. He's buying time. It doesn't just sound like he's pleased. It sounds like he is hopeful and almost expecting Paul to come back. That's right. And tell him, come on, John, you know where the Beatles, let's. 
Right, right. I mean, it signals a lot to him. To him, it suggests that Paul is buying time to figure something out or for them to figure something out, you know? And that's very, very important. Yeah. Okay, so we've just gone through the three major um, quotes from John. Let's examine what Paul said. Now, we're actually going to go through four of these, and we think all four of these are significant entries in his recollection of the breakup. These are all um, fairly representative of most of the themes that he hits when he tells the story, and these are all relatively coherent. So the first quote is from... Paul's biography, Many Years From Now, which was published in 1997, with a lot of cooperation from Paul. It was written by Barry Miles. Okay, so this is what Paul says. We were all summoned to sign a new capital contract at Apple. We all went round to do it, and it got a little bit, well, why are we doing this? Are we sure the group is going to continue? Oh, sure, it'll continue. Well, how is it going to continue? What are we going to do? massive big shows. Then I propounded the theory. I think we should get back to our basics. I think we've got out of hand, we've overwhelmed ourselves, and I think what we need is to reestablish our musical identity and find out who we are again, and so we should go back to little gigs. At that point, John looked at me and said, well, I think you're daft, which was a bit of a showstopper. He said, well, I wasn't going to tell you till after we signed the capital contract. Klein asked me not to tell you. But seeing as you asked me, I'm leaving the group. So everyone went, gulp? The weight was dropped, our jaws dropped along with it. Everyone blanched except John, who colored a little and said, it's rather exciting. It's like I remember telling Cynthia I wanted a divorce. And I think from what he was saying, there was an adrenaline rush that came with the telling. So that was it. We signed the new capital deal in a bit of a daze, not quite knowing why we'd done it. That's my recollection. Wow. That's a bit of a different take from John's version, just from like an emotional standpoint. Like it's, it's funny because it's, essentially the same but like all the emotions behind it are so different from Paul's perspective right in John's recollection Paul is sort of um, cluelessly throwing out ideas to the group that he's saying no to and in Paul's version it makes a lot of sense like they're going to sign this new agreement and he's sort of saying that he asked well why are we doing this are we sure the group is going to continue and then he gets some, he says he got some reassurance. Oh, sure, it'll all continue. So it's very logical the way he presents it, saying, I wanted to know why we were signing. And so I said, okay, how is it going to continue? What are we going to do? Is it massive big shows? And then he, you know, offered his one and only suggestion, according to him, which was that we go back to basics, right? Yes, which does make sense. I mean, if you think about it, I know there's a weird sort of myth about how Paul had his head in the clouds and was completely in denial and was just doing desperate. anything desperate, yes. desperately trying to keep the band together. Like he's not going to ask Alan Klein for details on a new contract. Like, like think about, think that through for a minute. 
<laughs> you know, like right. Paul McCartney is like notoriously the most detailed, sharp. sharp, and cynical of all of the Beatles when it comes to business. He, of course, he's going to want to know why are we doing this? What is the purpose of this? Also, Paul is actually a little self-protective at this time. As much as he, I think he wants the Beatles to continue, I also think he's a little bit nervous about throwing in his lot with Klein. Well, certainly know. he's got to suspect Alan Klein too. And the the worst part is that if he's suspicious of Klein, all of his suspicions are... Validated, are absolutely. Completely validated here because... Yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, he's 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 asked John to deceive him, and he John was going to do it. So yes, and that also means that Klein is getting Paul to sign something under uh, fraudulent circumstances. He's withholding information. He's lying to him about the deal. Like it wouldn't even stand up in court. It's interesting because, and I'm paraphrasing here, but he says something like, "This is a pretty like he had to hand it to Klein. This is a pretty good deal," and he said. If you're screwing us, I don't know how. And so, you know, because as we said at the beginning, right. it, he had negotiated a good deal. But the, in right. in reality, Klein was screwing him. <laughs> yes. They weren't sharing all the information. Right, exactly. Well, after the breakup, as John maintains, like, oh, I was, I was serious and everybody knew it. You know, John is implicating Klein. Yeah, repeatedly, so, every time. Every time, yeah. He says so, that Klein told me not to say it. And then after the meeting, he said Klein again told me not to say anything. So, right. yeah. And can I just say again, the fact that John wants to sign the deal for all of the, you know, yeah. I wanted to leave. John wants them to sign the deal. It's kind of like he does want to have his cake and eat it too. And I think it's interesting because Paul... It kind of doesn't want to sign, like he doesn't want to be signing if there's no Beatles. It's but kind of like he he wants he wants the real Beatles to be signing and know that they are committed. Which I think that the fact that they're going in to sign must convey to him, like there is implicit commitment in the fact that they're going to sign a deal. And right. yet Paul is hesitant, like, well, what are why are we signing this? Because if we're not a real band. I don't want to be signing it. Whereas John is supposedly thinking about leaving, but does want them to sign. I know that they do get money. Like they do. Yep. It's it's a good deal for them regardless. For sure. But there is a future part of the deal too. <laughs> yes. And that but, is, to me, it's like John wants the security, no matter what happens, of knowing that they are tied together. Yes. John, John is so eager to sign this contract that ties them together for the next six years that he's willing to lie to Paul and not tell him that he wants to leave the band. <laughs> right. But again, leaving the band may be one thing, but he doesn't want to leave the fold or the family. No, you not know, at this, all. This ensures that they will be tied together as a family for a very long time. And so then going through what he says, um, Paul continually tells this story, which he says that if they are going to continue, he has an idea for them, which is that they would go back to their roots and sort of go back to basics and maybe under a pseudonym and start to show up, which would have been the world's coolest thing for the Beatles to do, by the way. Yeah. But, you know, that's never considered. It's kind of like, no, oh, I had this no, crazy no, no, idea. No. But it's looked to give kudos 
to Paul for imagining a new route for the Beatles that would have been incredible and legendary. No, Diana, no, no. Haven't you read any Beatle books? It's a terrible idea, and Paul suggested it because he was going backwards. Oh, that's he was right. He was regressing. He wanted to Yes. John Lennon was progressing. I don't think you understand the Beatles. <laughs> Clearly, I have not been indoctrinated enough. <laughs> I mean, we've tried to tell you the same story in every <laughs> single book. You've read it 25 times. I don't know why you don't get it. Well, one day I was like, wait a minute. That is probably the most kick-ass, amazing thing the Beatles could have done. I know. It is so fucking rock and roll. Can you imagine if like, the Beatles had just sort of like anonymously showed up? Yes, like all over. Are... It would have been the world's biggest story. Oh my god! Oh my the god! The story in rock and roll. Can you imagine it? Like seeing them in that setting, amazing. No. It would be I... like like you'd get to see them in the cavern all over again. Like seriously, that would have been probably the only move that they could have done that would have made them more legendary. <laughs> People would have stabbed each other for those tickets. And Paul obviously went and did that on a smaller level, on a less epic level but I just think like can we just stop here and say kudos Paul for that idea one thing that we realized when digging into this is that well I think you're daft which is always like first of all that statement comes from Paul from nowhere else we know about that statement from Paul it always comes off as like condescending like it almost the fact that he shared that statement almost makes Paul look bad and clueless you know, and it undermines the coolness of what he was suggesting because John says, I think you're daft. So it kind of makes Paul look daft. Oh, you know what? And I, I think you're you're really onto something. I think that's why every author ever has been like, wow, what a stupid idea. Paul's such an idiot. Right. When it's in reality. No, Paul's a fucking badass. But, oh, that's right. I guess because John Lennon said he was daft. You guys think whatever he tells you to think. I forgot. Right. So all of a sudden, the fact that John said that made Paul seem clueless and stupid, you know, and whereas if they had all been committed to the Beatles going forward and were willing to put in the work, it it would have been a phenomenal idea. But clearly, John did not like that idea. So that's fair. I mean, yeah, 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 cool idea. But John's reaction was aggressive. You know, that, well, I think you're daft. I, you know, in John's telling of it, he just seems to be kind of like, well, then I had to, you know, tell him. I couldn't keep it in. You know, I could not tell a lie. Whereas in this version, it's a much more aggressive telling of it. You know, well, I think you're an idiot, basically. Right. Yeah. So, so John, in Paul's telling of it, John is much more reactive than he is in John's telling of it. Um, and more aggressive more aggressive. And specifically, he calls out the fact that John colored, you know, it's interesting, is in John's telling, Paul colored. And in John, and in Paul's telling, John colored. They both use the same word. That is very interesting. They were probably both so terrified. Well, you know, and we were just talking about this, that this is glossed over all the time, but this is such a significant moment between them, and it yeah. is between them. They are talking to each other, and uh, they only remember that each other is there, and it, it well, would have been high, high emotion. I agree. As we said, it's so glossed over in books, like, boop, 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 and then John lived happily ever after, and Paul was devastated. 
or whatever the version yes, is. Yes, yes, that's basically the version, yeah. But sometimes, like, when I read these, enough of them, because we've read dozens or, you know, Way too many dozens. to be, yes, yeah. normal. Sometimes it really does sound like they're in a meeting and then all of a sudden it's just John and Paul talking to each other and, like, everybody else just kind of falls away. Is, is back, yeah. I, I think yes. that, like, in a movie, everybody else would be blurred out. I mean, John and Paul don't even remember Ringo being in the room. And they never mentioned George. I mean, George was on the phone. It, he was part of the meeting, but he's never talked about. I mean, at least when, when Paul tells it, he does tell it as a group. You know, he says, so everyone went gulp. The weight dropped. Our jaws dropped. I mean, he, <laughs> you know, he may be speaking about himself. but Yeah, he does that sometimes, though. Yeah. And then so he says that everyone blanched except John, who colored a little and said, it's rather exciting. It's like I remember telling Cynthia I wanted a divorce. And this is Paul saying, and I think from what he was saying, there was an adrenaline rush that came with telling. So Paul notices that John is excited. And I mean, he communicates this, that his first, like, I think you're daft is a bit aggressive. And then he admits that he's he's leaving the group. And then... Paul's recollection is John was excited. He colored a little bit and was excited by the statement. Yeah. I mean, I by colored, I assume he means like he flushes. Oh, yeah, absolutely. He, yeah. So he's kind of like embarrassed, excited. His like his heart's pounding. There was an adrenaline rush. So, yes. He's, he yeah, he's probably it's like hyperventilating. Yeah. I think Paul sees it as a bit of like pleasure. Yes. You know, in this situation, which would be very hurtful because this was devastating to him. I mean, and John's least, getting off on it. And so that yep. would be very like, you know, imagine your spouse or your best friend says something that devastates you and they're happy about it. I mean, that's absolutely devastating. And John sees that Paul colored a little bit. You know, he realizes he's impacted Paul, that Paul is coloring because he's emotional but in a very different way yeah he said that that paul looked a little sick or something well he says he said turned all all kinds of colors yeah all sorts of colors yeah i love how john and paul are like both waxing poetic about the color of each other's skin flush and everything you know I mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah well that that's a better way to put it that paul you know paul flushed. so ridiculous <laughs> I know. Like they can tell the color of each other's cheeks and that that's what they remember. They don't remember who else is there. Right. But, yeah, but they, right. they notice that each other, like their cheeks changed color. They're like, were our <laughs> other bandmates in the room? I don't remember. <laughs> Do Did we anyone have tell other them? <laughs> yeah. I don't know, but I still remember the flush of your cheeks 50 years later. <laughs> right. <laughs> Anyways. Um, so not only does Paul say that John got excited, he said, John, said aloud that he was excited but the way that Paul describes it it's like John punched me in the gut and then I looked up in shock and he punched me in the jaw and then I started bleeding and then John saw the blood and got really excited and was like oh yeah you're bleeding oh my god yeah and he liked it holy shit that's amazing well, yeah, this is from Paul's perspective. He believes that John was excited and he, that John said it. So if John actually said it, it probably is an accurate representation. It's not 
what John tells. That's not part of John's telling of it, but. You know what I really love, though? I love that Paul does not sugarcoat this or downplay it at all. Like, I really do appreciate that because we would, there's a lot we wouldn't know if it wasn't for him. Right. He's not trying to save face. He's saying no. that it was really hard, that John was really excited. And, you know, that doesn't necessarily make him look good. He kind of makes himself look look a bit the fool, you know? I mean, from Paul's perspective, he's just like, I was about to sign this contract in good faith. And then all of a sudden, John's like, ha ha, I was about to trick you. Paul's like, what? And then he's like, yeah, and by the way, I'm leaving you. And then when Paul's taken aback, John's like, ha 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 ha. Wow, yes. yeah, I really want out. Oh, God, this feels good. This feels good. It's exciting. Yeah, this is his partner of 12 years. Did this in front of everyone. You know, Lennon McCartney, Did, they didn't have a, yeah. conversa a private conversation. This is something that John has obviously discussed it with Paul's enemy, basically. Yes. John does this in front of his wife, Paul's wife, and Alan Klein. And Ringo and George on the phone and potentially Mel Evans. John's immediately like, yeah, Klein told me not to tell you. So Paul's like, okay, not only... Were you going to lie to me? But Klein also fucking knows. And he told you to lie to me too? Like, how many people know? Right. I mean, that would feel like such a betrayal. I think it's not that he's upset that John wanted to leave. It's the fact that he was going to lie to him. And lie to him in a way that was significant and impacted his future. Yes. And then do it in such a humiliating fashion, despite how... John later comes to see himself as the victim when he's, you know, telling the story to Green. Right, right, right. He says this in a room full of people and absolutely humiliates Paul. Right. And it's it's so disrespectful to the group. You know, John wanted to leave and said, look, I'm really serious about this. Just, yeah. Should, should we sign the contract anyway? You know, is it? A, is, yeah. Is, Are you all cool with that? You know? Yeah. Can we work around it? Is this what we all want? Especially if... If we want to position John as a leader, like, and the other thing is, is that it's just disrespectful to Paul as really somebody who has been his co-leader of this band since inception. Of course. So that's the many years from now version. And, and then we have a radio interview Paul gave in 1983, um, which is pretty consistent with the many years from now version. The group was getting very tense. It was looking like we were breaking up. One day I came in, we had a meeting, and it was all Apple and business and Alan Klein, and it was getting very hairy, and no one was really enjoying themselves. It was, we'd forgotten the music bit, it was just business. And I came in one day and I said, I think we should get back on the road, a bit like what you and I were talking about before. Small band, go and do the clubs, sod it, let's get back to square one, let's remember what we're all about, let's get back. And uh, John's actual words are, I think you're daft, and I wasn't going to tell you, but we're breaking the group up. I'm breaking the group up. He said, it feels good. It feels like a divorce. And he just sort of sat there and our jaws dropped. And that was it, really. Yeah, this one's, this one's very, very similar. I think what strikes me 
is the fact that he makes clear that things were getting hairy, that they weren't enjoying themselves, you right. know, that they had forgotten the music bit. And it, that's sort of similar to what he says uh, in many years from now, that they, like he's trying to come up with a solution for this, that obviously they're way too in the, the business side of things and that mm-hmm. it's not fun anymore, you know? So he, he hits that a little bit harder in this particular version. And he does say it was looking like we were breaking up. So, you know, again, I don't know where this idea of, like, Paul is gobsmacked because he had no idea that John Lennon was unhappy. That's so stupid. Paul's like, yeah, no shit, we were breaking up. They'd been talking about it all year. That's not the part that's shocking. What's shocking to Paul is John does it in the way that he does it and is lying to them. Because, you know, we've got them on tape from early 69, the Let It Be or Get Back tapes, when Paul is proposing that we get a divorce, like, you know, and he, when he's talking to George about some meeting that they've had and, you know, Paul says, well, that's what I was saying, that if we're not th- enthusiastic, you know, what are we doing this for? And sort of paraphrasing here. But the point is the word divorce has come up before, but it's kind of been a group discussion. It's not like a taboo subject or anything. It's something that's been in the air. Yeah. And, you know, again, like he said, that you know, the group was getting very tense. It was looking like we were breaking up. Yeah. And, and as he says in the 1997 interview, it, it is very normal and natural for Paul to ask, why are we signing a six year contract? Are we still a band? Like, I don't think we've necessarily really decided that yet. Like, are we still moving forward as the Beatles? Right. And, and, and in this version, too, he says, and he says this many times, the group was getting very tense, um, you know, that no one was really enjoying themselves. And, you know, I think that people forget that I don't think Paul was thinking this was super fun at this point either, you know? <laughs> yes, yes. That, that, that he's clearly communicating that he wasn't having a great old time. I mean, I, th- I think he's still saw the potential and was optimistic that they could find themselves again. But yeah, he's clearly saying this situation they're in is not fun or sustainable. Just to, to hit on a few other things that he says here, he repeats the, I think you're daft. So this is another um, yeah. anecdote where he mentions that specific line. He repeats the idea that John said, I wasn't going to tell you, but we're breaking the group up. I'm breaking the group up. This idea that John says he wasn't going to tell them. Yes. Yep. And then he mentions again, it feels good. It feels like a divorce. So again, this Paul notices and repeats this statement that it feels good. You know, that John is excited by this statement. Yes. Those, those three things he hits again. I think you're daft. I wasn't going to tell you. I wasn't going to tell you. Yeah. And it feels good to say I want to leave. Yeah. Okay, so then so that's consistent and then we have Paul's anthology version. This version stays pretty much to script. It is it's much like the previous two that we just read. Um but I'll read you this excerpt is that he said John looked at me in the eye and said, "Well, I think you're daft. I wasn't going to tell you till we signed the capital deal. Klein was trying to get us to sign a new deal with the record company." But I'm leaving the group. We paled visibly, and our jaws slackened a little bit. And then further down in the, in the paragraph, he says, I didn't really know what to say. We had to react to him doing it. 
he had control of the situation. I remember him saying, it's weird this telling you I'm leaving the group, but in a way it's very exciting. It was like when he told Cynthia he was getting a divorce. He was quite buoyed by it, so we couldn't really do anything. Oh, you mean you're leaving? So that's the group then. It was later as the facts set in that it got really upsetting. Right. So this one to me is interesting. I mean, he hits on the same points, the same, you know, I think you're daft and I wasn't going to tell you and that Klein was trying to get us to sign a new deal. Um, Also that John was excited. Absolutely. He's very consistent. That is burned in Paul's memory. But I think that he adds an important element here. I didn't really know what to do. We had to react to him doing it. He had control of the situation. Hugely important. We've just talked about John for the past year, but specifically in the past month, you know, if we're looking at the context that we're speaking about, John wasn't leading Abbey Road. Then he comes up with a single that they've rejected. He's tried to get maneuvered Klein in. He hasn't been able to get Paul to sign with him. He's proposed, you know, a new way forward, which Paul hasn't supported and a Christmas single, which Paul hasn't supported. So in some ways, John's got to feel phenomenally frustrated that he can't control, he can't take control of this group. And yeah. in doing what he's doing, it's it's kind of like what he did with in, it, bringing Yoko in. He finds ways to unbalance Paul and the group and to take control. And Paul recognizes this, mm-hmm. that in doing this, John may be blowing up the gr- the group, but he's willing to do that to get control. Yeah, it, shock and awe. I mean, that's his his tactic, right? And and I think that at this point the tables turn because all of a sudden Paul, who has had a lot of control in the past couple of years, this is the one way that Paul can't control the band is if John leaves. You know, if your power move is okay, I'm leaving. I mean, that's a last resort. That's your final ace in the sleeve. I mean, that's yes. it. Yes. And we've said that since the beginning of our, we do think that this is Jean's biggest and most important play, most dramatic play. Well, I think he knows that. And I think that's why he's vibrating with, with adrenaline because he's gambling a lot on this move. This is a big move. It is. It is. And I think that, you know, for all that, John says that he wasn't going to say anything. I think that this feeling of powerlessness, of not being seen and recognized, has been building up for so long that when he takes the reins, when he makes this move, it feels good. You know, he's got power again, that all the attention is on him, you know, and all of a sudden he holds the reins of the Beatles in his hands. Like he has everything. And yes, exactly. And he's and he's got Paul shaken now. Yep. And he knows it. He his recollection. Yep. He notices that Paul goes all shades of color. So he knows this, and he knows that Paul does not want him to announce it because, for whatever reason, Paul not wanting to announce it is a signal to him that Paul doesn't want this to happen. And in some ways, you know, that that makes John seem a little crazy and not very nice. But on the other hand, you know, we've we've discussed a lot that Paul almost to a detrimental level 
may have been protective of his feelings at this point in that, you know, we, we know in the 442 meeting, John does talk about feeling insecure and weak and unable to fight. Like he is communicating vulnerability. And we don't hear the same from Paul. Maybe maybe it was happening and we just don't have a record of it. But we don't have any records of it. And we do have records of John communicating this kind of thing. And so it's not that just John wants to hurt Paul. I think he wants to know that Paul cares. And maybe he feels like he has to go to these lengths to see some evidence of that. And then the other thing that, that jumps out about this particular quote is that Paul says, it was later, as the fact set in, that it got really upsetting. You know, in in the previous quote, he said, we kind of signed in a daze, not really, mm-hmm, you mm-hmm. know. So it does support the fact that he had kind of a delayed, re- like it's taking him a while to sort of process all of this. Absolutely. And that actually is aligned with what John said. Like John's perception was that Paul colored a little bit, but then he seemed to be... Yeah, and, and a little bit nonchalant about it. Yeah, a little bit nonchalant. And once he was reassured that John wasn't going to see anything, it was kind of like, yes. oh, he shrugged and went, oh, well, it doesn't mean anything in John's recollection. Like, in John's right. recollection, Paul is a little bit impacted, but he notices. He sees that he's impacted him, but I don't think he feels like he has deeply wounded him. Well, I don't think he feels like he's destroyed him or anything. I no. think he, you know, I think he's he's made enough of an effect that he's he feels good and he knows that he's he has the power to yes hurt Paul, meaning that Paul cares. Yeah, Paul's reaction in the meeting that would be a normal reaction is that you're devastated, and then you find out that well, there is a little bit of hope and. Sometimes it does just take a while for for the reality to set in, you know? Then he went home and really thought about it. Yeah, exactly. I think that Paul, in the moment, is kind of confused by all of these different elements. It was later, as the fact set in, that it got really upsetting. I think he has to walk out of the meeting before he can make sense of what just happened. Yeah, yeah. As As anyone would. I mean, it is confusing that John is you know, saying he wants to quit, but he won't say anything and will sign the agreement and clearly wanted them all to sign the agreement. Why are we signing this? Yeah, so it is confusing from Paul's perspective. All right, so this is the Life Magazine interview that Paul gives in 1971, uh, spring of 1971. And just to provide context, this is after John's Lennon Remembers interview. So that's come out and Paul has so read it. So this is like, this, this would be Paul's response almost, like his version, his side of things. Right, but there is an additional element where he has sued the Beatles and he goes and wins the first motion of, of their case. And so this is Paul largely communicating to the public his point of view, which he hasn't been doing very many interviews. So this is a really important interview. But also, I think this is absolutely a way of communicating to the other Beatles. Yeah. So he's doing damage control on a couple of fronts. Yep. You know, yep. one with the public because... He's he's not looking so groovy. First, he's been trashed by John, 
And then he turns around and sues the Beatles. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He's, so he's like, he, you, you, know. th- you thought I was a bad guy before? Just wait. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then he's also um, trying to probably communicate with his with his Beatles. Yeah. Was but, He's got two audiences. Know, they're having a hard time. Yeah. And they're pissed off because he's one. Yeah, yeah. Right. So this is, it's a long, excellent interview, but this specifically pertains to uh, the divorce situation. All right. So we're just going to jump in. He says, so I felt the split coming. And John kept saying we were musically standing still. One night, this was the autumn of 69, Linda and I were laying there talking about it. And I thought, that's what I miss. And that's what they miss too, playing. Because we hadn't actually played for anyone for a long time. And being an actual good musician requires this contact with people all the time, the human thing. So I came into the idea of going to village halls, which hold a couple of hundred people, have someone book the hall and put up posters saying maybe Ricky and the Red Streaks Saturday night. And we'd just turn up there in a van and people would arrive and we'd be there. I thought that was great. John said, you're daft. At this time, John's thing was playing for 200,000 people because he'd been at a big festival or something. So he wanted to do that. And I can see now what he thought. I can see which way John sees progress. I see it sometimes another way. We were talking in the Apple offices. Ringo was there. He agreed. And maybe George wasn't there. So then John says, anyway, I'm leaving the group. He said, I want a divorce. He literally said, I want a divorce. And for the first time ever, he meant it. So that just hit everyone. All of us realized that this great thing that we'd been a part of was no longer to be. Well, I mean, this is, um, this is interesting. He does remember the people that are in the room, apparently, at, in 1971. Well, he, he remembers Ringo was there at this point, but he's like, maybe George wasn't there. I don't really remember. It's unimportant. <laughs> Ringo. And we have a fourth member, too. What's his name? <laughs> yeah. So let's go through this one. So again, in 71, he's making the point that I felt the split coming. So he's not yes. delusional and hanging on to the Beatles for dear life and, right. and oblivious. He knows it's coming. He hears John. For all that John seems to think that Paul's not listening, he says that he hears John kept saying we're musically standing still. Paul is clearly thinking about this, trying to find a solution. Even though he he says, I felt the split coming, he's trying to stop it. You know, he's trying to, to resolve what their core issues are. And he's listening to John saying that we're musically standing still. What's cute about this statement is that, as always with Paul and Linda, they seem to make all of their core decisions. <laughs> he seems yeah, to come up with yeah, his yeah. big ideas while lying in bed talking to Linda, and um, you know, and and he comes to the conclusion that what they're missing is what they loved originally, which was playing. And I like the fact that he says, and being an actual good musician requires this content, like. He wants to be an actual good musician. That matters to him, and he thinks that matters to all of them, right? Well, and and human contact, like with an audience, that really matters to him too, right? The human and, thing. And like, 
But 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 just to, to add to that is sometimes when people talk about Paul, about Paul, they're like, oh, he's a performer. He loves the adulation, or he loves the 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 response know, it's, that he gets. But I think that Paul's saying here that like there to be a good musician, there's an element of feedback. I mean, anybody who is doing something artistic knows there is something to putting work into the world and getting some feedback. It, it you know, it ups your game. Yes. We all know that the complaints about the Beatles tours is like, no one was listening. Nobody cared how they sounded. They couldn't even hear the music. And, right, you know, right. there is like something like a real big thrill about putting yourself out there in front of just a tiny crowd where everybody can hear everything. Right. And and the point is, is that he has come up a, for, with a way for them to do that. You know, like as the Beatles, they're not able to do that, but he's cracked an idea that, hey, if we show up places in small venues under pseudonyms, that maybe we can do that again. You know, like clearly we yeah. can't show up as the Beatles because then it's a huge thing. But if we just spontaneously show up and we perform, then we get the small venues. Then we have to step up our game because people can actually hear us. <laughs> we can see their reactions because they're right in front of us, unlike when we're in a yeah. giant st- stadium. And they can plus, hear us. Plus we'd get to invent new band names every night which <laughs> right right which, gotta be fun <laughs> what to me is really um a breath of fresh air in this is that the Beatles story is always told that the kind of belief is that john had to go out and break free and do his own thing and, and paul even tells this story later on he morphs into telling this story that john just needed to go out and be crazy and do his own thing Whereas when we get closer to the actual date with a more confident Paul in 1971 saying, look, I know that John is selling that as progress, but I'm a great <laughs> artist and I see progress coming in a different way. Like, it's super cool. You I know. know. It's very confident. It's cool that he's just like, yeah, doing the big shows, that's bullshit. Right. That's not necessarily progress. I, He's you know? like, yeah, I've done that. I've been there and done that. I'm looking to do something new, but... Uh... Yeah, and and people who are really in the know will, you know, will actually recognize that this is new. I mean, he's not even he's not even digging like that. I think he's just saying that, hey, there are different ways of progressing. And, you know, John always assumes that his way is the only way, but I'm thinking about that too. I don't necessarily think it's a dig, but it's a little, it's a little passive aggressive. Well, and John takes it as a dig. <laughs> oh, oh, John flies off the fucking handle about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, right. <laughs> he so subtly does it. Sometimes I wish he would do it more blatantly. I wanted to go reinvent ourselves as like a cool indie band, but I guess I'm going to have to do that on my own because Beatles were too fucking full of themselves. <laughs> I mean, he's making a point. No, he, he has a good point. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Not that so, any Beatles author has ever picked it up ever. No. Or any writer of the time. This is Ram, period. Like, he's about to drop Ram. And and it's a very confident Paul saying there are different ways to evolve as, a, as an artist. Don't just think there's one way. Well, they all think there's one way. Yes, exactly. Yes. If we go on about what he says here, this is closer to when it happened. He says that John says, anyway, I'm leaving the group. I want a divorce. He literally said, I want a divorce. So John must have dropped the divorce statement 
And and intriguingly, he says, and for the first time ever, he meant it, <laughs> which is hilarious. Because that, that is pretty hilarious. Because it suggests this uh, this might have been threatened for a while, and and clearly we hear them in Let It Be. They're talking about divorce as a group. You know, Paul is saying, "Well, I said this," and George is saying, "Well, we should get a divorce." And then John asks, "Who's going to get the?" The children and Paul says, like, Dick James. Do we should have a divorce? Well, I said that at the last meeting. But it's getting nearer, you know. Who'd have the children? Dick James. That has been in their little group, right? Sort of the way that Paul says it. He, he like, it's not the first time he's threatened anybody with, I'm going to leave. You know, It might have been an idle threat before. Yeah, and it's it's clearly something that that Paul is used to. Now, for some reason, he takes it more seriously at this point. Whether or not he should have is a different issue. But he sees something different in, in the way John has said it at this point. Yeah. We also have the um, accounts that Paul said he never wanted the Beatles to break up. You know, he he has put that on record that if it was up to him, the Beatles wouldn't have broken up. Um, yeah, that's true. You know, so and and I think we believe that he means in the form they were in, <laughs> you know, like in the ultimate Beatles form. He doesn't mean in any format. Right. Well, you know, when Paul says, if it was up to me, that see, here's the thing is. I find it a little disingenuous on Paul's part when he says that, because he's saying like, hey, no, man, it was it's not my fault. Beatles didn't break up because of me. OK, if it was up to me. We'd be, still be Beatles today. We never would have, never would have broken up. I loved the Beatles. I'm the biggest Beatles fan, remember? Right. But don't blame me. Don't blame me. He said, he says, I, I never wanted the Beatles to break up, but he leaves out the part. As long as I was allowed to do whatever I wanted and that everybody followed my lead and, you know, yes, exactly. I, I could maintain a high level of quality on each album and, you know, everybody got behind the concept and um, people fucking showed up and worked hard like they should when you're in the greatest band in the world. Yeah. Am I fucking crazy expecting people to work hard? You know what? But that's a really important as long as it was the Beatles that I liked and I envisioned and I was in control of. And as long as it was working for me, like there is, you know, there is very much that tied to it. You know, it's it's the kind of like the Beatles that all of us love too. But on the other hand, yeah. Uh, on the other hand, no one is satisfied with that with that band. And then in Paul's except, defense, well, except uh, the the audience and Paul. Well, yeah, except the audience and Paul, right? But the other three Beatles are like, "This is fuck that. We don't want to rehearse." You know, in Paul's defense, if the other three Beatles are going, we're gonna turn it all around and it's going to be different and you're going to have to you know submit yes yeah then i also don't blame him for being like oh really well then fuck you guys (laughs) so yeah yeah you know i see where they're all coming from yeah they're that they kind of get to an impasse yeah because john has proposed a way forward that apparently was acceptable to him and paul was like nope so exactly (laughs) exactly so he had the opportunity to save the Beatles in some form, and he did not. That's like a perfect case scenario. Paul, you had the chance, and you didn't. So 
yeah there was one version of the beatles you want and and fair enough it's the one he signed up for where it was the four of them right, right democracy right. where and and where the cream rose to the top yeah and not for nothing but you know um in the early days sometimes john got his way by being the loudest yes you know, again, exactly John's just finished being like, well, so you, you've been getting your way for three years because you fought harder. And, and Paul's like, the fuck, John? Isn't that our deal? One final thing I want to pull out from this, uh, the 1971 quote is that Paul makes an oblique reference to Toronto. Yes, the big he, festival. He's not, he, he's not explicit, but he is essentially saying... I had this cool idea of, you know, us going on the road on the down low and, you know, surprising people and all mm -hmm, that mm -hmm. kind of stuff. Meanwhile, Mr. Live Peace in fucking Toronto over here thinks he's too good to do that. Yeah. And I think that it connects to why does he react and say, I think you're daft after Paul. Pitch is a pretty cool idea. Yeah. Which is a pretty cool idea. Uh, you know, John had said six months earlier he wanted to be all back to basics. And here Paul is, is pitching this. So what was said that John reacted to? And I think that the, the oblique reference to Toronto actually could have a connection to why John did what he did. Okay, so again, why did John break his promise when he did not want to say he was quitting? Why did he end it? Like, was he triggered? What What are the reasons why John potentially changed his mind? Right. So two of the reasons that he usually gives, the first one is that he felt bad about lying to Paul, right? And it was just a, it was just like a pang of his conscience right. wouldn't allow him to, you know, to dupe Paul into signing the deal under false pretenses. Right. right. Um, which is what John said, although his behavior and his reaction afterwards doesn't really support that. Oh, right, right, right. <laughs> right. When that one's pressure tested, if he felt guilty, one would think he wouldn't be saying things like, I think you're daft, and then announce that he's leaving the group. And right? then say, it feels great. You know, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> really. Right. <sighs> I feel feels so awesome. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Man, I feel guilty. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, his behavior does not really bear that one out. Yeah. Um, which isn't to say that that maybe he, you know, at some point he did think, well, wow, wow, that's pretty fucked up, but I guess I'll do it. You know, like, <laughs> you know, maybe he did have some residual guilt about it or whatever, but that does not seem to be his what's driving him. Um, and then there's also the the sort of idea that Paul called his bluff, which John right. said a couple of times, you know, again, is, you know, we, we talked about, he sort of exaggerated to, it to be like, well, Paul gave 50 examples of ways that we could continue. <laughs> and I was saying, no, no, no. After saying no 50 times, I, I kind of ran out of excuses. So I yeah. had to tell him, you know? Yeah. Um, and, and Paul does kind of support that one too, because he does say, you know, I was like, well, why are we signing this? So yeah. that one ha that one has a little bit of, of validity too, although... I think um, there could be elements of truth to both of these. Like when it came, with when push came to shove and Paul is proposing an idea and asking John what he wants, 
that maybe John had a hard time lying to him. And maybe he felt a bit of like we are signing an agreement. So both of those yeah. could be playing into them. I'm just saying. I, I, I agree. I'm not, not necessarily dismissing them both out of hand. I'm just saying, um, although they both seem to be true, they don't really strike me as the prime motivator. No. And, and like we said, they don't necessarily, his behavior doesn't necessarily support those as being the, the real reason that John doesn't about face and admits he's leaving the group. Right. So, so to connect to what you just mentioned, which is really interesting, this oblique reference to, you know, John had been playing for festivals at the time that we, we looked back and said, well, what did John react to in the meeting? Like, was there something that, that triggered John? Mm-hmm. And I think one of the issues that we see in this month is that John is proposing a lot of ideas and he's being rejected. And I think that potentially he might feel a lack of control, of agency, lack of respect. And and I think that's the biggest thing, like lack of being seen and appreciated. Like his great new song, Cold Turkey isn't seen as like the genius song it is. And his idea isn't seen as the great idea. And his choice of manager, Paul, isn't recognizing. It's like John does not feel like Paul is recognizing how good he is. And then he goes to Toronto and he has this great success. And he's like, they're leaders of the peace movement and everybody loves him. And then they come back to sign. And Paul in this scenario is like, guys, I think we need to go back to basics and relearn our trade. And just playing this out, this could be John reacting to, I think you're fucking daft. Did you not just see who's like the most famous person in the world who just got the biggest applause, who went to this massive concert and everybody loved? Like, and you think that we need to go back to basics? Yeah. You know? I wrote Give Peace a Chance. That and all is, those kids were out there fucking chanting it. Right. And it's like, could you fucking appreciate me and what I bring to the table and stop telling me that I need to work harder? And so one of the things that he is triggered by is Paul's like thought that they need to go back to the basics and, you know, get to be genuine, good musicians. And, and that is just absolutely not what John Lennon wants to be doing at that time. I think he wants recognition from Paul. I want your perspective. I, you know, tell me what you did there. That's, that's really cool. He wants to be recognized and wants power. And Paul did not agree to any of his ideas in the last meeting. And so Paul is like, Hey, well, how are we moving forward? John might be thinking, I just gave you six ways of moving forward. Yeah. Yeah. And you didn't listen to any of them. Remember you didn't want to do any of them. Right. So, don't so I act. went off and did my thing. Yeah. So don't act like, hey, guys, what are we going to do? I just gave you a list and you ignored them. And now, of course, because it's your idea, yeah, you're proposing it. So it could be like the fact that he's annoyed that Paul is not giving him kudos and appreciation for all that he's doing outside of the Beatles that he thinks probably yeah. gives him legitimacy to be leading the group again well there's a bit of irony here that john is like i'm leading the peace movement meanwhile he he can't even lead his own band right and i think that infuriates him like i think he went to 
We know he went to Toronto feeling so annoyed with the band that he wants to quit. Something is yeah. driving him to want to quit on the way there before he has a success. Then he well, has a success, which would have only emboldened his sense of rage, outrage at the band for not seeing how good he is, you know? And something is driving him to do all this peace stuff. Right. Like something is driving that. There's a there's a mania to that or to all of his side projects that, yeah, I mean, he probably and, is getting a real kick out of them. But and, to and, your point... Well, well, yeah, like, like you mentioned it before, like there's a, there's a, um, like an addiction to like the positive feedback that he's getting. But I think there's also like, it's like an addiction to the approval. That's right. And he, it's, it's approval that he's looking for. And I think every author chalks it up to like his mom and dad's approval. But, you know, there is also his partner, his creative partner who, this is an abstract. This is very tangible and happening right now in his life. Right. His yet, partner of the moment is not giving him the approval that he wants. Right. Of course, the person that he chose to put his name with is the person that is going to matter to him more than anyone. Well, they, they will Consider. concede. They will concede that he is competitive with Paul. Well, yes, he is doing this all for Paul, but that doesn't mean that he likes Cause him. Because he, or... he wants to beat him. But, yeah, exactly. But, yeah, but again, exactly. fundamentally, you're only competitive they're, they're, with people that you actually respect, you know? Well, and like he wants to beat him, but hello, they're partners. They <laughs> right, collaborate. Right. 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 They've exactly. been working together for, for like their whole lives up until the last, you know, uh, rocky nine months or whatever. <laughs> yes. Like Paul calls their breakup an explosion. And, and, so really and truly, this happened pretty quickly. So yeah, th those feelings are still there. So there may be the element that John is getting approval everywhere else. And I think it bolsters him. Like, why can't you see that? Why can't you? Well, and to take this to a really sad note for a minute, if it was a couple years earlier, Paul was very supportive and proud of John's books and... Yep. You know, like anything that, that John would do. And I, I feel like if this was John doing this in 1967, Paul would be standing up, you know, proud as punch, talking to reporters like, John is magnificent. Do you know what he's doing for the youth? Well, he, even did, he even did that in 1968 when he was talking about John's book being put made into a play. You know, when he's in America, he's still doing that, right? Yeah. So it's not that, I, I do yeah. agree that there is a shift, which I'm sure John feels. Yeah. And I def like I definitely just get the feeling again, this is also sort of, you know, going forward a little bit into the next one or two years that John is very frustrated that he hasn't earned Paul's respect, respect and admiration yes. with his peace efforts and right. stuff like that. Like, like Paul's just kind of like, I'm not really impressed. You know, I mean, good no. luck at all. I mean, you know, that 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 is one of the elements that we think really bothers John about too many people, again, going into yes. the future, and we don't want to get into this conversation right now, but, but it's a consistent theme that John wants to be seen. And, you know, and the thing is, is that if we go back to their origins, I think that, you know, Paul thought the world of John, absolutely the world of John and vice versa. And if yes. John thinks that Paul is, has lost that, that would be, 
heartbreaking. Well, it, and again, I constantly hear people talk about Paul so admired John in the early days. You know, this is why Paul needed John's approval for the rest of time and stuff like that. But from my perspective, it's like that approval from Paul is what gave John the strength and energy and faith in himself to succeed. Absolutely. He didn't have that before he met Paul. And like, for God's sake, show some respect. I know. There's no respect. But on top of that, I think that John felt seen by Paul because he had somebody brilliant who actually could see John, wasn't afraid of John, saw through John, could, could like immediately was able to take co-ownership of the band. And, you know, that to me shows how he had John's number from the start, but I think John liked it because somebody saw him, you know? Yes. And like, how important is it to find a kindred spirit? It changes your life. But then it's really important that the kindred spirit sees you and, and, and remains your biggest fan. And I think that that's what John is frustrated by is that he's doing a lot of stuff that Paul is kind of shrugging about like, okay, you know, go off and do your thing if that's what you feel like you need to do. But it's not like, wow, John, I'm so impressed. Yeah. And I think that this gets worse as the next six months play out. It, this, this issue gets worse and worse and worse between them. Yeah. And it's interesting because like John and Yoko have done a good job of, you know, being aligned with the zeitgeist of the time. You know, they're very culturally connected or what they're doing is connected to what's going on in culture right now. And, you know, kudos to them for coming up with like a song that rallies people, that gives them like what they're doing. There is something great about that. But on the other hand, I think Paul can see that they have good intentions, that they're doing something. But on the other hand, it, it kind of is, you know, a little silly and a little for show and a little... Yeah, a little yeah. shallow. Yeah. I, I do think that Paul is impressed by Give Peace a Chance, actually. I mean, maybe not at this time. I think eventually he, he is impressed by it. Um, you know, I have to assume that Paul is impressed by a lot of the things that John's doing. But anyway, so to go back to this meeting, you know, that could be the underpinnings of some of John's emotional reaction to this. Feeling that he's not being heard, he's not being seen, he's not being appreciated. Paul only wants to champion his own ideas. Yeah. Which serves his own interests. And besides that, like, why can't Paul recognize the fact that he doesn't need to go back to small venues? Yeah, it does make actually a lot of sense from John's point of view. And also, we know that John, in general, does not like to work that hard at being a musician he likes to be spontaneous as an artist and you know john and yoko's whole approach to art at this point is that not to be a perfectionist um yeah and so yeah you know they're kind of at loggerheads there the the idea of having to go and work hard at something again is john's kind of like what like the big we're the world's biggest rock stars don't tell me we need to go practice exactly he's like paul i don't care I'll come up with a cool slogan, do a bunch of interviews. That's all we need to do. Yeah, we're not the JBs. It's fine. But that ignores what Paul is thinking about in terms of, I think he's, he says that he wants to get away from the business. I think Paul in some ways wants to get away from the whole fame thing. I think that in some ways 
like you said, there's a little bit of a dig there about John thinking that that's progress is to be in front of giant crowds and be super famous. And that's what Paul's kind of pointing at is that, you know, progress is not necessarily bigger, going to bigger crowds. You know, I think that John in this meeting is is acting emotionally. He's already frustrated with something that's going on in the band, you know, his la lack of control. So I do believe that when he said, I'm leaving the band, that he probably meant it, that he was probably so worked up mm -hmm. that he felt like he wanted to do that. And it felt good at the time, you know, like, okay. I don't think Absolutely. it was fake. I think that, I think that he was maybe so angry underneath that that gave him the strength and drove him the, the fearlessness to say that. Yes. And so he meant it at that moment. I don't necessarily think it reflected, given that a week earlier, 10 days earlier, he's thinking of ways for the band to go forward. I don't think it reflects his deep desire and the outcome that he wants. However, I do believe that he probably meant it at that moment. But something that we also discussed was that John also goes in with the knowledge of what happens when you quit. He's seen two other people in the band quit. And basically their positions have been strengthened by doing that because they've always been wooed back. And so, yeah, you know, that that's what he communicates to Green is kind of like his expectations were set by Paul not wanting him to say anything, that he thought that they were going to work it out. And I think that there was probably underneath it all or subconsciously some thought that he had control he had more power and that things were going to be improved his situation was going to, like he had negotiating power right now and that he deserved to be wooed back in the way absolutely. that george and ringo were right absolutely i do agree that he meant it in the moment because if he didn't mean it paul would know that which he says you know that at that time he thought he meant it unlike the other times right <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Paul seems fairly convinced at the moment, at least, that that John means it. I mean, he does say after, you know, we all thought, okay, fine. You never know, it might blow over, which is totally reasonable. I think yeah. even Paul was like, we know how John is. There is a good chance that in three days he's going to call up and say, okay, we need to have another meeting and right. act like it never fucking happened. Right, like the Jesus example. You know, yeah. one day Jesus, the next day, like, that never happened. Right, exactly. And, like, if that did happen, it wouldn't blow his mind, right? Nevertheless, I do think he takes him seriously here. And I think it's because John was serious. In John's acting, like, he knows it's a big deal because he's shaking and sweating and turning purple and whatever. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, and he's With like, excitement. Oh, yes. oh, God. Yeah, exactly. The power. Like, yes. But at the same time, yes, I, John has got to have the expectation that if George and Ringo get fucking wooed back, but where's where's my drum kit all decked in flowers, you know? Where are my postcards saying I love you and you're the greatest, but, John? I mean, that's yeah, exactly. literally what Paul sent to Ringo is you're the greatest drummer in the world. Like, I'm sure yes. John is thinking that he's like for his partner, you know, like clearly Paul recognizes that that's what Ringo needed to hear. 
John's going to be like, well, clearly he knows when people make up, when people freak yes. out that they need recognition. What am I going to get? Am I going to get a new car? Am I going right, to get, exactly. you know? <laughs> Am I going to get a let's kiss and make up? Finally, I'm going to get some love that he yeah. should have been giving me all along. Right. You know, m- maybe now this will shake him up. Like he'll fucking wake up and see how he's not been treating me right. You right. Know? Right. I really believe that. I mean. Again, Paul knows that he has to say that to Ringo. Like it was an eye opener for him when Ringo leaves and he's upset with Paul and Paul realizes he makes a mistake and and tries to fix it. So John's expectation is that Paul probably will try and fix it. Yeah. Yeah. And all he knows for sure is that he's got Paul on the run now. He knows that Paul's going to have to chase him now. And he's sort of thrown down that gauntlet. I quit. You would do something about it. Yep. You know where I live. Exactly. I saw you went pink and you don't want me to announce it, which is fine. I'll give you some time. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> See what you what you have to offer. <laughs> yes, exactly. I am open to offers. <laughs> Paul says that John turned the tables and now he had all the power. He had so control, even- yes. Or, yeah, he he had control, right? So I think Paul recognizes it, like, this is kind of a power play. Yep. But the thing is, is that I don't think that Paul, I don't think it even crosses Paul's mind that John really needs some love. You know, like, I could really just end this if I just went and said, well, John, I love you. No, and in some ways that's unfortunate because that is a reflection of how powerful Paul thinks John is. Yep. And... Yeah. You know, and so he thinks, well, John doesn't need that. I think Paul's perception of how important and needed he is to John personally and emotionally at that time is, you know, gone all cattywampus. Like he like I agree. I think absolutely. I I think deep down, Paul knows that he's one of the most important, you know, arguably the most important person in John's life. But John is pushing him away in a lot of ways. Yeah, I I think that I've always said that, too, that their wires get crossed. Paul knew how to breed John for a long, long time. And Yoko being in the picture, like John's still playing games, mind games with Paul. And it's like Paul stops being able to read John or and it probably is, like you said, that he stops thinking he is as important to John as he is. Right. I think that's a, a really important insight is that all of a sudden he believes John when John is saying, like, all I need is Yoko. Yeah. And in some ways you can sort of understand why Paul would think that. But on the other hand, I mean, I think that John's behavior is fairly obvious as well. Yeah, but but things are so fucked up between them at this point that, like, it's exhausting. Like, it's exhausting for us. We're not even living it. Like, we're just observing it and it's exhausting. Well, but again, though, we just heard John in the meeting saying I was too weak to fight. And he is communicating some stuff to Paul that Paul just isn't taking seriously. And I don't think it's because Paul is unfeeling. It's I think that Paul's mind is not registering it because he sees John as being strong and he sees John and Yoko as being strong and not needing his approval. But John does. Maybe John feels like, hey, I've really communicated this to you. We also know from the excellent May Pang. Yes. 
that John likes mind games and that we think that Paul and John have been involved and playing mind games their whole lives, not in a bad way, but the fact that there is a certain gamemanship that they expect with each other, right? And part of the the fun is knowing that when you make a move, somebody's going to make a counter move. We know from Mei Pang, she talks about the fact that John kind of appreciates some of Yoko's um, power plays when they're separated, that he sort of reads them for what they are is more, you know, he doesn't take them necessarily ser- seriously, but he appreciates the the fact that she is engaged. Engaged. In yes. 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 That that he he and Yoko are really into mind games. Like it's like it's a turn on for him. And Mei Pang observes this, that he likes it. And to some extent, I think that Paul and John play mind games. And the most important part is that each remain engaged, right? So John is playing yeah. the ultimate move here. And I think his expectation is that Paul will go away and figure out a way to counter it or re-engage in a different way. You know, that's part of their ongoing conversation. I mean, you just have to take a look at their 1970s output and songs that they're writing back and forth to each other to get a glimpse of their sort of mind games. In some ways, that's why their breakup is not that sad to me. I mean, it is. It's devastating. But on the other hand, they never disengage. And I think that that's what makes the um, traditional story for me quite sad is that, you know, in that version, John just disengages and Paul stays engaged, right? Yeah. <laughs> Which does not bear out. But they, they remain always engaged. And so this is a period where I think Paul gets confused and believes John for a second. And, and John, meanwhile, thinks that he's played a really big move and that Paul hasn't wanted him to say anything because he's prepping a counter move, you know? The point is, is that he expects Paul to remain engaged and remain playing the, the, the game with him. And unfortunately, I think personally, what happens is that Paul takes him a little too seriously and thinks that John doesn't want to play anymore. So this meeting that we just talked about is traditionally viewed as the moment when the Beatles broke up. But while we think this is a turning point that created a new trajectory for the Beatles, we don't think it was the moment when Lennon-McCartney or even the Beatles ended. Things were not irredeemably broken. And rather than being a definitive conclusion, it actually triggered the beginning of a protracted period of tacit negotiation. Therefore, the next six months are critically important to the story. And our version of the breakup doesn't end here. The next episodes are crucially important to our view of the breakup and our conclusions on what happened to Lennon-McCartney. In the next episode, we'll discuss the immediate repercussions of the September 20th meeting, particularly Paul's reaction upon arriving home that day and how his perception of his relationship with John begins to change. And we'll also discuss a startlingly intimate interview John gives only three days later, which we believe reveals quite a bit about his perspective and provides insight into his motivations. So stay tuned as we bring you the shifting moods, 
changing positions, uh, crazy maneuvering, and panic attacks <laughs> of our favorite dynamic duo, Lennon McCartney. If you enjoy One Sweet Dream, please consider leaving us a positive review on iTunes. You can also find me, Phoebe Lord, at our sister podcast, Another Kind of Mind, also available on iTunes and wherever else you get your podcasts. And me, Diane Erickson, here at One Sweet Dream. And of course, please follow us both on our social channels, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, at One Sweet Dream Podcast and Acom Podcast. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.